Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. In this episode, co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers continue their conversation with engineer Tim Walsh, who currently supports the Joint Polar Satellite System Weather Satellite Program, a collaborative effort between NOAA and NASA that delivers key observations for severe weather events and environmental hazards. In part two of our interview, We'll learn about the satellites Tim has worked on during his career, starting with an interesting connection to Mercury astronaut Deke Slayton. We'll discuss the challenges associated with demands for more rapid deployment of new on-orbit instrumentation and the evolution in satellite design that has enabled a faster cadence for launching that new equipment. We'll learn what it means to be a good orbital steward when decommissioning satellites. And finally, we'll discuss the interplay between Defense Department technology and the commercial satellite industry and how international collaboration in the world of satellites is commonplace today. Uh, since we don't specialize in weather, let's talk about cool satellite stuff. So what are some of the specific satellites that you've worked on? My first experience with satellites was um, a really interesting intersection with one of the original Mercury uh, astronauts, which was when I was um, the first company I worked for, built something called um, the Commercial Experiment Transporter. And I mentioned a little bit to Eleanor before the podcast about it was intended to be used for commercial you know, manufacturability or other uh, demonstrations and or actual, um, it was basically a hotel on orbit for manufacturers. And this was probably an idea before its time because it was in the early 90s. But I wrote, I was a young engineer, a young doubly electrical engineer who was um, tasked with writing an interface control document between this uh, what was called the service module for this uh, comet vehicle to something called the Conestoga launch vehicle. And, and Tom, I don't know if you remember the Conestoga, but it was built, um, the brainchild or the real driving force behind it was Deke Slayton. Yep, the Conestoga one. It uh, wasn't a pretty yeah. picture in the end. No, not in the end, but um, I will say that uh, uh, the early, it was my first entree into like interacting with the launch vehicle people and, and uh, a lot of fascinating people. And it was, it was, you know, but again, the, the, the real key thing for me as a young engineer was um, the access and the, um, the real person of uh, the, the personability that, it, that was Deke Slayton. I mean, he was a, he was a, an idol to me, of course, but when we were, when I was interacting with the company that was providing the Conestoga vehicle, he made himself available to anyone and everyone. Wow. And, I specifically remember going to lunch with him, and he would be talking about mostly, oddly enough, flying aircraft, not flying, flying spacecraft. Um, but he was, he was just, it was just such a great opportunity. It was right, sadly, right before he passed away, about two years before that I got a chance to interact with him. Wow. So that was my first experience. I did move off that project well before the launch of it, which I think you remember well. I think you were alluding to it. I, I don't know when it launched, maybe 93. Well, it, it launched um, when it wasn't supposed to, but you, you were cleared of all wrongdoing in that? It was not due to my eyes. Okay, all right, that's good. What's that all about? What happened? It's interesting. I don't know the actual root cause of the failure, but it, it launched from Wallops Island, Virginia. It would number a number of years after I think it was intended to launch. It was put in due to funding constraints, I believe, into um, hibernation for a year or two or storage. And then they pulled it out 
and launched it. And, and to be honest, again, it was a couple of years after I'd left. So I just remembered that it sadly um, was a very ex- spectacular uh, fireball over, over uh, Wallops Island, Virginia. A sad day for the Conestoga. But, you know, I, I do think um, it would be interesting to see what that that failure um, review report looked yeah, like. Yeah, I'm doing but, a quick look here. I know because uh, basically what happened was they, they did a, a countdown hold and some clock continued going and it went. To everybody's surprise, basically. Yikes. You know, I know, Tom, you and I have worked on actual launches that have been successful, which is a good thing, but that's really something you don't want to hear. From that time, I moved over to supporting the the first weather satellite, uh, GOES-8, which eventually was launched in 1994. I was a young engineer that went back to grad school for something called guidance, navigation, and control. I was more of a control systems person. It was called electrical engineering, but it was really a combination of electrical and mechanical. When I was actually a real engineer, I, I was actually working on the GOES-8, 9, and, and 10 spacecraft um, on with the launch teams there. And I think one of your previous podcast uh, guests, Andre Dress, and I worked together on that. And a large team that, that still remains, you know, to, it's a really nice testament to the team we had because we all still kind of remain in touch. And then my time intersected with Tom a number of years later when he was working on, I guess, the successor to that first Type of satellite that goes, um, what became goes 13, 14, and 15. Yeah, we had uh, and I, we had 11 and 12 to launch. I was involved in some of the uh, sim work on that. And then I believe you were the fault detection and correction engineer or flight software engineer. I had moved off the program at that right, point. Right, you'd gone right? into management. And uh, sadly, missed the good stuff, which is <laughs> the And uh, Tom wisely was doing that, but I think is now involved in a bunch of stuff. One, one important point about that goes 13 spacecraft, which served ably a number of years over the United States, it's since, uh, as you can see from Space News, has been moving uh, to a different location um, to support uh, DOD in its retirement, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I think they're going to do some experimentation on it. When a, when a spacecraft is in the, its prime of life, you don't want to mess with it too much. So It's kind of bittersweet when you have to, uh, when a satellite has to be deorbited or otherwise deactivated, but sometimes you get a chance to do things to it that maybe test parts of it that you otherwise would not have normally tested in orbit. So uh, find whether electronic sides that were that have been dormant for 15 years still work, for instance, and such. And so that's kind of fun. But yeah, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with what they're doing on GOES-13 on a day-to-day basis. When you had GOES-8 through GOES-15, they were all flying with essentially the same instruments while we were waiting for the next round of instruments to come around. That's true. And, and that's interesting because when I moved out of the active command and control of satellites in the early 2000s, that's when I got involved in the next series, and that was fun because we were developing brand new instruments. And this is really an important point because I do think that you know it took us about ten years or more to get to orbit, and I think that's one of the challenges that we as a, a community have to do in the next ten years is find ways to get better instruments with new requirements onto orbit um, in not in a ten-year cycle. So that's our big challenge now. And I know Tom, that was one of the questions that you kind of posed to me, but. Our big challenge over the next 10 years is to get rid of the larger, you know, Battlestar Galactica, you know, satellites with multiple instruments. By the way, when I said Battlestar Galactica to a young engineer recently, they didn't know what it was, and I was really disappointed. Oh, man. But either way, or maybe I should have said Death Star, but we had... Um, now, you got to say, uh, what was it, uh, Star Killer Base for the new one. The big, the big phrase now is disaggregation, or pulling the instruments off of all the instruments on one bus and maybe putting them on smaller buses that could be, you know, the lower cost access to space, 
get him up on a faster cadence and put him up into different orbits. And that's the key, you know, when we go back to the weather modeling, the more samples you can get of high quality in different orbits, the better your, your initial conditions or your processing will be. And, um, you know, that, that makes sense to me as an engineer. I'm not, again, a, a scientist, but I think the more instances of these measurements we can make, the better our products will be. What, what is the average lifespan for these satellites? When they're, when they're decommissioned or deorbited, um, do they just burn up in the atmosphere or do they fall in over the ocean? What, how are they deactivated and brought back? Yeah, that's um, well. The two different satellites have two different, very different ways of ending their lives. And so, to answer your first question, we're very conservative when we build these satellites because they're such an important investment, right? And so, we have multiple power sources, multiple ways of getting data off the satellite, multiple ways, basically almost a backup system for everything on orbit. Because, as Tom knows well, the fun part of this, when you're doing engineering, the fun part of it is 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 sometimes to to fix them on orbit because you can't go up there and reach them. So um, to have the backup capabilities is really critical. And sometimes you have to be really inventive with systems the way they weren't necessarily invented on Earth, but uh, in orbit use them in a unique way. But these satellites are usually built for what's called a five-year lifetime. And and Tom's probably smiling now because we usually go well beyond five years. Yeah, I'm looking up at the history here. It's looking more like we average about 11 to 12. The good news is, is that um, it gives us a little bit more flexibility in which to replace them, but um, it also means from a scientist perspective, boy, they could get really frustrated because they want the newer stuff on orbit, right? So um, I think what we're gravitating towards is we've been encouraged to take a little bit more risk and maybe not provide backup systems and belts and suspenders. And as I mentioned earlier, the focus is trying to reduce that cycle time from a 10-year developmental cycle, God forbid, to a, a something shorter. And so the, the way to do that is you have to accept a little bit more risk in different areas. And that might mean not having backup systems to backup systems. But again, five-year lifetimes is our, five to eight-year lifetimes is kind of our design life, but usually overachieve. And that's a, a testament to the people that are operating them too. Going to your second question, the way we do them is very different um, for the two different types. First on the geo side, since they're so far out there, we use so much fuel to get out to you know, 22,500 miles that to bring them in would be design prohibitive. And so we actually move them to a graveyard orbit, uh, so to speak, about, Tom, I, I think the UN requirement is like 300 kilometers. That sounds right, um, yeah. And so we move them out um, into a graveyard orbit where they won't necessarily disrupt uh, anything else. And there is no other usable need or no other um, valuable need for that orbit. And, and what we do, too, is we have to what's called passivate them. We, we kind of get all the fuel out of them, try to disconnect the batteries and stuff like that so that you don't have any – or you reduce the chance of an explosion. So on the LEO side, the ones that are, you know, a little closer, like 800 kilometers or more, or you know, between the the, uh, the ones that orbit about 100, 100 minutes per orbit, we bring them in. And um, that's only more of a recent um, – requirement. And I think it's a proper thing to do because of, you know, the orbital debris concerns. But we have enough fuel on board to bring the satellites that are that are in orbit uh, now. And we bring them in usually over the Pacific Ocean. There's usually a very targeted area that's a low probability of impact to, to, to uh, landmass. And so that's the objective. We haven't had to do it with the two that we have translational capability or return capability on. But the way we used to do it, this is a very proper way to do it. The way we used to do it, they'd just be turned off in orbit, and they'd be, there's many of them uh, that were launched over the years are still tumbling in orbit. So they will eventually return. 
um, over the course of a couple of decades. Oh, wow, interesting. But I think we're I think we're doing the right thing now. I think we're we're being good global or be good orbital stewards. Oh, yeah. It took a little while, but we figured it out. Correct. Wow. And there's a point now where you even have to deorbit or uh, or send beyond Earth orbit the uh, the the booster that gets them there. Correct. That's the that's that's definitely something you have to account for when you have to negotiate with your launch service provider for performance because they are required now to be uh, to bring in their upper stages. There's so many upper, as you know, Tom and Eleanor, there's so many upper stages that now we actually have to take into account when we launch stuff. And sometimes we, on orbit, we have to um, move satellites to get out of the way of things that are um, a certain st- statistical probability of potentially impacting our satellites. Oh, we could do a whole show on that. That's that's. Uh, partial magic, partial individual personalities, and and part part mess. Oh yeah, and talk about um, you know whether it's international or civil DOD or other interactions. That's where it really you need to work things out. <laughs> so. Wow. And things are about to get a lot more complicated on that too. Absolutely. Yeah, we look at all the, um, I guess, the, the Starlink satellites and all the other things that are in orbit. I mean, I, I applaud the efforts because it's a, it's, but it's something that we'll have to really keep an eye on as we have to do traffic management in the sky. Sounds like a job for Space Force. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, space traffic control would be, in my opinion, could be something that, that could fall into the realm of the Space Force, although the FAA and um, and other agencies as well could could be a part of it. Right. I think there was something I read a year or so ago about uh, Department of Commerce playing a role, too. So there's a, a number of entities that will have to be talking to each other, certainly. So who, what are you working on right now? Um, now I'm working on um, the current generation of, of low-Earth orbiting satellites called the Joint Polar Satellite System. We're getting ready for our next launch, which is going to be in a couple years. feels like it's tomorrow. It's going to be a little bit like the two previous series of GOES satellites that you were referring to. The GOES 8 through 12 and the GOES 13 through 15 had different buses but with the same instruments. On, on this program, we actually will have two different buses with the same instruments. Um, it's not exactly analogous, but it has some of the, the same sort of um, challenges that you had to go through for 13 to 15, whereas you're, you have to make sure the interfaces are, are everything's working well. And, and more importantly to our users, you have to make sure that there's no impacts to data continuity. The data looks the same, essentially. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's been, for me, it's a, it's a new program and it, it's a, a good group of people. And it's, it's definitely a lot different than the previous one I was on. You mentioned about that there are DOD has their own weather satellites. Can you give any examples of if they have technology or some sort of imaging that's been ahead of us that's unclassified now, like any sort of story of like what was like something really interesting that they had that the commercial side didn't have, but now it's like on our satellites that really was a big innovation? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think uh, I will say what I, what I think, and then I think Tom probably is a good um, adder to that, uh, as Tom worked on the DOZ side. I think uh, one one experience I had that was really illuminating here was that uh, in the mid-90s, when I was a fairly young engineer and still involved with engineering, I was I moved over to the low-Earth orbiting side and worked with a civilian the civilian version of what's now JPSS, or the Joint Polar Satellite System. It was called POSE, or the Polar Operational Environmental Satellite. And as part of, I guess, the U.S. administration's 
efforts at the time for, if you remember, reinventing governments. You know, there was a, an effort to try to splice together the operation of the civilian and DOD satellites. And so it was really fascinating because you basically had satellites that were built by the same company with different instruments, um, but serving a lot of those, the instruments data went to serve the same customers. And so, um, but I got a chance to see how the different cultures, uh, the DOD culture and the civilian culture interacted, and more importantly, what was more important to them as users. And I think my my notable remembrance there was really the, the time importance. It wasn't necessarily the spectral or spatial content, but they had different instruments, but they had a need to get things out in real time faster. I would argue that the civilian side has the same type of temporal rate or, or time requirements, but Tom, I think that's, if you you might add to that, but I, one thing I do remember is when the DOD satellites called the Defense Meteorological Satellite Program, or DMSP, when they came over, every instrument had a, a, a prefix to it that was called SS, like SSMIS or SS, but the SS always stood for Special Sensor, and so we realized as we were operating these satellites that, that they were all special sensors, so... <laughs> Tom, it was hard to distinguish because they were all special. Right. It started with the first one, and then anything that was added, probably they couldn't name at a specific time, so they had, like, special sensor F and special sensor M and all that sort of thing. Right. But, no, that I, the really cool part about that effort was that it was a success. The, the two types of satellites have been operated out of the same control center for now, like, oh, 20 oh. years, and very successfully. So that's been very cool. But, I, I unfortunately, I can't tell you any real wow stories about the, the – unique uh, uses of those instruments um, that were very different. I don't know if Tom could say anything more. I will uh, comment that the the ultimate goal of that effort was to build one satellite to serve everybody, and that was known as the National Polar Orbiting Operational Environmental Satellite System, or NPOSE. And when I give presentations talking about satellites, I put a picture up of, of a DMSP satellite and a picture up of a POSE satellite and said they wanted these to come together and if two of these had crashed together in orbit, it would have caused less problems. <laughs> that, <laughs> a very fair assessment, Tom. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, yeah, so there were two effort. you know, that whole um, effort to, to merge the two systems. Part A was very successful, which is the operation of the two constellations. But, yes, Tom, as Tom points out, the, the merging of them to a common product, you know, fulfilling the requirements of all these varied customers um, was really tricky. And, and they, it relied, and without getting into the, the various details, but it relied on some new contracting approaches, new, just new approaches in general. But it was a tri-agency effort between NASA, NOAA, and, and the Air Force. And um, I think ultimately it is probably, there's, I think there's some really good papers out there. I have to admit, I wasn't working on the program at the time. So the nice thing that, that came out of that is in 2010, out of that effort came the JPSS program, which was, a true NASA NOAA effort with the DOD as a customer. And DOD has, um, they elected to, they're planning on supporting a, a complementary orbit um, so that I think we're all still working together, but the DOD is going to supply a, a separate uh, spacecraft and instrument. And so I think it's it's all worked out. You know, there was it was rocky along the way, but we have some good data from the two JPSS satellites in orbit. And I, and I know I would be reticent to say or to miss that uh, the fact that um, DOD is supported I should say, in the global environment that is LEO, there's a lot of other providers of satellites that all supply data to these models. So I think as everybody comes in and, and provides what's important to them, the interesting thing is the scientists use all of the data. So 
when DOD comes with their new satellite, which should be coming in a couple of years, and UMETSAT, is a, the European version of NOAA, is about to launch their new series of LEO spacecraft, it's going to be an exciting time over there. Obviously, other nations have their own satellites flying. Is there data sharing, you know, between countries for prediction? And also, you have certain companies here, like, launching those satellites, developing the satellites, but are they really the same same companies developing similar technology that's sold to other nations. So in other words, is there any other innovation in other countries that like the U.S. doesn't have, or is the U.S. generally the the innovator and sort of has the best satellites flying? You know, I, of course I'm biased, but I, I do think that there is, um, it's interesting, first to get, step back and say, um, with these various satellites, I think there's so much collaboration. In fact, there's a lot of intersections, whether it's scientifically at the AMS conference or other satellite conferences, that I think a lot of where the individual company, countries are are based on the investment that they're willing to put in. And I think UMETSAT is unique in, in Europe because it's a basically a, supported by a, a number of different countries. It's not supported by any one country. And so what you find is a lot, oftentimes the instruments and the spacecraft are developed in the locations that are supporting them, but the data is shared uh, globally. And so I, I think it, I'll go further than that, is that on the on the U.S. system side, we actually interact and support the, U, the European satellites and the Japanese satellites and some other satellites, basically receiving the data from their satellites and supplying the data to them through our ground system. So that way we get, it's basically uh, um, a good um, sharing arrangement in that we might provide a service to them, but they will provide the data to us. And so a lot of times these international agreements work in that regard is that there's a, um, it's a very equitable relationship, of course. I think the, the thing that's really encouraging, especially in any, in any global environment where sometimes things seem very polarized, I mean, there's a lot of close collaboration, even with groups that you wouldn't necessarily think of as close collaborators, because in the meteorological world, China is a big player. So I think our close, the, the groups that we work with the closest besides the um, U.S. Uh, entities like DOD are UMETSAT, the Europeans, and uh, Japanese, uh, JAXA, the Japanese version of NASA, and it's um, JMA is the Japanese version of, of NOAA, the Japanese Meteorological Agency. So I think uh, it's a fun environment to be in, a community to be in, because it's so much international collaboration. Yeah, great. One of the things with the, uh, like the differences in instruments, what will happen is a slightly different technology, a slightly different sensor will go in another country's uh, instrument, and then one of their scientists will, will tease out some new use for it. And it's like, whoa, that's crazy. And it wasn't, in, in many cases, it wasn't deliberately put in there. It's just something that somebody figured out that could be done. Oh, most definitely. I, there's two things. First of all, I, 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 I would be mistaken when I mentioned earlier that some of the countries will pay for their own instruments to be developed. One nice, nice thing about the instrument that we provided on the GOES-R spacecraft is something called the Advanced Baseline Imager, or the real workhorse that's imaging the Western Hemisphere. The, the um, Japanese and the Koreans have also purchased the same instrument, basically put it on their own spacecraft and launched it. So a good chunk of the GeoArc, really more than half the world, almost two-thirds of the world, is being imaged by the same type of sensor, which is really great if you're trying to do what's called you know calibration and validation, trying to make sure that the sensors are, are calibrated properly so that they're looking and measuring um, data the same way. 
But, uh, yeah, we know those scientists love their calibration. If they can't uh, correlate to the previous data, they are not happy. No, they're not. And, and that's, that's a critical point. I mean, you want to make sure that your data continuity, your data record is is, uh, is something that you could measure from uh, year to year and, with the, and over different types of instruments and different types of spacecraft. We hope that this was an informative episode. We'll conclude our conversation with Tim Walsh in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.